Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, and who came to hear and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. Did anyone else like Charlie Brown when you were younger? That used to be, a, you know, before there was like 400 channels. This was a big deal when you were like seven and Charlie Brown special came on, on the screen, you know. But Charlie Brown one time, he was complaining because his team always lost their games. Lucy attempted to console him by saying, remember, Charlie, you learn more from defeats than from victories. Charlie responded, that I must be the smartest person in the world. You know, we should absolutely learn from defeats, shouldn't we? We've all had enough of them. We should learn from defeats. We better learn from defeats and failures. As imperfect people, we're going to have disappointments. We're going to be a disappointment at times. But we should... And we will see more victories, more wisdom, more breakthroughs when we become people of prayer like Jesus. That's a fact. We will see more victory, less defeats, we'll learn more from our defeats, and we'll see more of God's power in our life when we become people of prayer like Jesus. When we truly become people of prayer, we're going to see a lot more families saved. We will. We will see, you'll you'll start to talk to people and God will open new doors because the measure of victory is always started on our knees. And until we get there, we are chasing the wind in our personal life, in ministry life, whatever it is. The Lord, the longer I now have been saved and served, and the Lord has told me, simplify, simplify, simplify. And it starts with prayer. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in this text this morning, it started with prayer. It started with prayer. We'll look at three things this morning. The prayer, the pillars, these 12 men, which will early be 11, unfortunately, The prayer, the pillars, and the power that we see here. You know, it's true. Prayer does change things, doesn't it? It really, really does. Even if it doesn't change the circumstances, it changes you and me. And you know the really cool thing is? 
when we really pray and we become dedicated, committed, and diligent in prayer, God starts changing outcomes. I've seen so many changes, even in this fellowship, that God is doing that many people aren't, maybe don't see or aren't seeing yet, but they will because God is doing the work. And it's tough work when God changes things, isn't it? When he plows, when he tills the ground, when he begins to water, at first, if you've ever planted something, it takes a while before you see that work, doesn't it? takes a while. You know, yesterday, uh, no, Friday, I cut my grass for the first time since last fall. Remember, that you get that last cut, and then you get that first cut. And I, as I'm cutting the grass, even though it's gotten thick and green, because I, I put it the, the weed killer, crabgrass halt stuff down uh, the last Saturday in February. We had just had snow. Oh, we had snow like the following Monday or something, if you recall. And, you know, when you're cutting, I, I look and see even though we had all this snow all the winter, weeds were coming up again. All these things were growing up. And it's a never-ending battle against all the things that try and choke out what is supposed to be nice and life-giving and beautiful. And that's the same way as in our life. The enemy is always sowing seeds of destruction, doubts, discord, discouragement. And yet the, the Lord Jesus says, you just keep your face on your knees and let me take care of all this other stuff. You know, you don't have to do a million things. Simplify. It starts with prayer. You know, as we look at this first verse, now it came to pass in those days he went out to the mountain. Jesus would often do this. He would go and be alone in prayer. How many of you really get alone in prayer? Just you and the Lord. You carve the time. You make the time. You know, well, Jesus, he had all the time in the world. He didn't have a busy life like me. Really? <laughs> Managing the entire world's universe's problems? He made the time. We make excuses, don't we? He made the time. He had a lot of things. He had crowds from every direction that wanted just a minute with him, just a second with him. But he said, I found a dead zone time called the middle of the night. He continued there all night. It's not easy to pray. I, and I don't care how long you've been saved, it's no easier now than it was five years ago. It still takes effort. You know, I, I work out. I know it doesn't look like it, but I do. <laughs> Just to stay somewhat healthy, uh, I, and I can't... I, I, watch young guys run up and down the basketball court in the Final Four yesterday, and I'm like, I remember those days. <laughs> Didn't have that kind of talent, but I thought I did. And, uh, but at least just to, just to have the energy level. But, you know, bodily exercise, the Scripture says, profits a little, not a lot, a little. Profits a little. It's valuable just enough that you can be more of use to Jesus. But beyond that, it doesn't have great value. It doesn't mean you'll live to be 190. You might not live another day longer than you would have if you didn't. But you'll at least be healthier while you serve in children's ministry or Bon Air or whatever it is, worship that you're doing. That's valuable. But prayer life is exponentially valuable. And we, we kind of believe in some things, but we don't believe in other things. And Jesus said, if you would believe me that investing in prayer is going to pay big dividends, you will do it more. 
Amen? What we believe in is what we will do. It's not easy, but it's worth it. It's totally worth it. It takes intention, though. We have to be intentional in our prayer life. No one else is going to drag you to pray. The Holy Spirit will prompt you to pray, but you have to obey the Spirit. I have to obey the Spirit. The Spirit will prompt me to pray. The Spirit will say, get up a little earlier. Turn that off. Go to bed earlier. Go to bed earlier is a big one to have a, having a successful uh, prayer life. Now, Jesus, he, obviously, he prayed all night, and I will get to why. There, I think that there's some uh, teaching there for us. Uh, this is not to say that Jesus is requiring all of you to pray all night, all the time. Although he may call you to do that at one point, he may call you to pray all night for a specific need. And if you don't feel called, you'll just lay in bed and can't fall asleep, then you'll know you're called. <laughs> I don't feel called to this. But you're wide awake. I've had those nights, haven't you? And you realize, I think I'm called to pray tonight. I was not listening when I had opportunities to pray when I was awake. So he says, ah, ah. I will teach you to pray one way or another. But Jesus didn't have to be roped into prayer. He loved to go to his Father. It was relationship, and that's where we want to get to. You know, um, in Matthew 14, we find that Jesus was in time alone in prayer just before he walked on water, just before he calmed the sea. He was in prayer, Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew 26, just before going to the cross, where was he in Gethsemane? in prayer. He tried to convince the disciples that they should join him, and they fell asleep on the job. Same guys that you know, we're going to look at here. In Mark chapter 1, he rose to pray long before daylight, and afterwards he preached all throughout the Galilean synagogues and was casting out demons, but he rose long before daylight and prayed in Mark chapter 1. We see throughout his ministry, Jesus bathed in prayer. 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness before he started the ministry at all. And even as he was praying there, uh, when the Holy Spirit came down upon him, prayer, it, everything Jesus did. If we're not going to follow Jesus or listen, listen to Jesus, we're really wasting our time. But if he had to say anything to any of us, he'd say, what do you notice about everything in my ministry? I started with prayer. All of it. So we have to start it with prayer. It has to start with prayer. In Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark eleven seventeen, it says, Then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You know, sadly, the church is not always a house of prayer. It must become a house of prayer. When it does, we'll see a house of victories. We'll see many souls saved. We'll see many lives transformed. You know that Matthew records this same statement. It is, is it not written, my house should be a house of prayer? Matthew records it, Mark records it, and Luke records it. All three record it of the Synoptic Gospels. All three. Very important that Jesus is saying, it, my church should be built on its knees. If Jesus, who really didn't need it, and you think about it, did Jesus, who was God himself, did he really need, I mean personally need, any help to do anything? No. Why did he do it? To set the model for those of us that would need all of his help. Apart from him, we can do zilch, nothing. 
More than 25 times in the Gospels, more than 25 times in the Gospels, Jesus commands, cites, or reminds his disciples and or hearers of the importance of prayer. More than 25 times he reminds them of the importance of prayer. You would think that he only needs to say this once or twice, but he doesn't. More than 25 times. More than an additional 20 other times in the gospel, the writers record of Jesus himself praying. An additional 20 plus times. And Luke, we read this back in the fifth chapter, just one chapter prior. Remember Luke wrote, so he himself, in verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Jesus was always refueling the power through prayer, always. If you've drifted from your prayer life, it's, if it's not stronger now than it was last year, simplify, return, back to your knees and watch God work. That's where it comes. Not thinking about it more, not coming up with better ideas, not coming up with smarter ways to do it. Jesus, when he's all night in prayer, he wasn't trying to figure out how in the world am I ever going to find apostles? Where will I find 12 men valuable enough to do this? What if there's a lot of demon-possessed people? How am I going to get them to come here to this place? And God says, just pray, I'll take care of all of that. And he certainly does, doesn't he? Prayer was foundational of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is essential to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. There can be no possibility of the spirit-filled life apart from prayer. Do you believe that? It's impossible. You cannot have a spirit-filled life. Matter of fact, if I were to ask each and every person individually, one by one, ask you point blank, say, how's your prayer life? However you answer will dictate the measure of power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit's not there. You have the indwelling with salvation. But the power and the presence and just the anointing of the Spirit comes through what? Prayer. There's no other place. That's where God does the purification process. That's where God does the peace process. That's where God does the rebuilding you back up process. That's where God does the uh, that's got to go in your life process, right? All of those things come through prayer. Martin Luther said this. He said, as the saying goes, he who thinks of many things thinks of nothing and accomplishes no good. How much more must prayer possess the heart exclusively and completely if it is to be a good prayer? Don't you love that statement? He who thinks of many things thinks of nothing. Jesus had a singleness of focus. He says, me and my father spend a lot of time together in prayer. And from that single relationship comes dynamite everywhere I go. Everything that I touch is anointed by the Lord. I'm not saying me, I'm saying Jesus. I wish that were the case. But it can be that case growingly, or that's not a word, increasingly. You can add that to your dictionary if you'd like. No charge for that. But I believe there's a specific truth, a specific truth and an encouragement here in Luke. There's numerous, but one I want to point out. I believe there's a very specific encouragement and truth in just verse 12. It says that Jesus went to the mountain to pray, and look at the word after and, continued. That's the word. Continued. Every 
single thing of value in the Christian life, you'll continue in. You're going to throw off the things that are of no value. That's the old man. That's the old life, the things that have no value. But prayer, you'll never throw off. You'll continue in it. Metaphorically, we would continue all through the night of our life. That makes sense? Your life is going to always have trials, always going to have dark times, always going to have difficulty. It's been well said. You're either in a coming out of a trial or heading into one. So if that's true, and it is, and when you're coming out of one, you're just encouraging everyone else around you who's currently in one or headed into one. That's the way it is, because life is tough. It's difficult. But we want to be continuing in prayer, growing in prayer. My good friend Sam Nadler, who will be here with us in in June, from Word of Messiah, he, he always likes to say it's always, soon to, it's always too soon to quit. We have to continue in prayer. Sometimes we have to pray for months over something. Sometimes, I know this is really weary, years. Say, haven't I prayed this every day for seven years? And God says, yep. When will you answer? I've been answering, but you don't know yet because you can't see what I see. Keep praying for that family member. Keep praying for that breakthrough. Keep praying for that deliverance. Jesus was praying all night, and we don't know what things he was praying about, but I guarantee you some of the things he was praying about didn't even happen the next day. They were months or maybe in our lifetime because Jesus prays. He sees all of eternity. We can't. But do we continue in prayer? Are we diligent in it? Hudson Taylor found that when he stopped trying to... Isn't this great? I love... Hudson Taylor, he learned something called the exchange life, where he exchanged his life for the life of Christ. They say, well, everyone does that. No, not everyone really comes to tangibly understand that, that we've exchanged that life. But he, um, he said he stopped trying to do great things for God. And you and I have to do this too. Stop trying to impress God. He stopped trying to do great things for God, and he just focused his eyes on Jesus his death, his life, his work, he himself. He was no longer striving to have faith, but looking to the faithful one and resting entirely on him. You see the difference? See, that kind of prayer life is not, oh, I got to pray. I got to fit it in. I got to do it because if I don't, I can't check it off the box. I got to make sure I pray because if I did pray, then God knows that I still love him and I did something. No, no, no. You're pressing in to be radically filled and transformed. You're pressing in because you want to know the God of the universe. And when you do, and you just rest in him, not trying to please him or do great things for him, but just to come to him and know that he is. And a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. When we spend time in prayer, when we spend time in the presence of our Heavenly Father, the life of the Spirit, and then ministry to our families, ministry to our church family, and ministry to all the lost that are out in the world just flows from our life. It's supernatural, but it looks natural. You know, we go up to Crabtree Falls, you don't necessarily see where the source of the water that's deep inside of springs. You just see it rolling down the mountain. 
and you see its beauty, and you hear it, and everything it touches, little ferns start growing up around it, and this is what the Lord wants to do through us. As we spend time with Him in prayer, we will be like rivers of living water flowing from us. This is what the life of Jesus looked like. Well, let's look at what takes place next in verse 13. And when it was day, his prayer was with a purpose. He, had, he knew where he was headed, back down the mountain to a level place. And he was going to name the 12 apostles. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12. Now, there was more than 12 disciples. The exact number we don't know. You'll recall that at a later time, Jesus will send 70 out, sending them out two by two. So he has a number of disciples, but from the disciples, all of us are disciples, but none of us are apostles. I know that some people use the term apostle, and I'm, and I'm okay with, you know, there's ministries out there that term apostle as those who are missionary church planters, and I understand the context of, of the usage, but in the truest sense of the word, there were only 12, minus one, plus two. Well, that's, what are you talking about? Well, Jesus chose 12, one fell away, Judas, and Jesus knew from the beginning he would fall away. Matthias has chosen to replace him, and then there's an apostle born out of time named Paul. So you have 12 minus one plus two. So where does that mean? Where, how do they end up with 12 in the future? You'll have to wait till you get to heaven to see how it all shakes out. Where does Paul fit in? Well, he's not part of the 12, but he is part of the 12. He's, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was an apostle to the Jews primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. And so Jesus, knowing that the Lord was going to, with his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, he was going to establish his church on these men as the foundational leaders of the church. And God always uses men. I know that it bothers some people that God uses men, but he does. He uses guys like Moses, David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He uses ladies too, doesn't he? Isn't that great? Rahab, Mary, Martha. He uses women as well. Priscilla, for specific needs, God uses people. And uh, why does he use people? Well, that's all that he created that is in his image. He did create animals and all that, but they weren't created in the image of God. We were created in the image of God to do the work of God, to worship God, to serve him. And the church, he's handpicked, Jesus is handpicked with God the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit, 12 men. And I know it blows our mind why he chose Judas, knowing that Judas was going to fall away anyway. Uh, no one can really answer that question, by the way. Uh, other, to, other than to say that I think it's great wisdom for us to understand that any man is possible, it's, any, it's possible for God to take any man to the level of Moses, but it's possible for any man to become so hard in their heart to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's possible that you and I could be, could be used like D.L. Moody, but it's also possible if you hide sin in your life that you could become like Judas. And it's an eternal warning, and yet we see the men like Peter 
And it's a great blessing to know that God could use any of us. These are 12 ordinary men, folks. No different, no greater, but they become men that God will use. Well, this is a big decision, choosing these 12. Ask you a question. Do you ever need God's help in making big decisions? <laughs> if you don't, you redirect your thought process again. You all, we all, I, we all need God's help making big decisions. No, we don't, we don't need His help making small ones, though. Now, that's where we get in trouble. We need His help on small ones, too, don't we? Small decisions overlooked and we didn't pray about them can become big, big mistakes. Don't ever think, you know, just we need to get in the habit. This is something that I don't care how long you've been saved, you, you can grow in this. Everyone can grow in this. The greatest people you've ever met in the faith can grow in this. We can learn to pray about everything. Now, I've met people that, you know, they kind of crack me up. Uh, I, I don't know that this is, but you know, I've met people say, Lord, should I buy the brown shoes or the black shoes? <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe there's some wisdom there, but without, you know, without uh, getting into every little detail, I'm saying we have to pray to God to give us wisdom in a lot of things. More and more. Just, just throw up a simple prayer and say, Lord, I'm about to go visit so-and-so. Give me wisdom in everything I should say. Help me to be joyful. Help me to be cheerful. Things like that. Just constantly asking the Lord's help, wisdom, guidance, direction. Big decisions, small decisions. Have we committed them to prayer? Jesus always did. In 1 Peter 5, 7, you know this verse. I hope you love it. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You know, God wants to help you make the right decisions. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. Isaiah 9, 6, he's called wonderful counselor. You know, if Jesus is your counselor, you're in great shape. He's never given bad counsel, not once. I've given bad counsel before. I've given times like look back and say, that was a really dumb thing to say. But Jesus has never said anything that wasn't 100% spot-on perfect advice. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We have no one to blame but ourselves if we didn't receive wisdom from God. We have no one to blame but ourselves. We have to put in the time and, and seek his face. Now, why do I refer to this section as pillars? Why, are, why would I call these guys pillars? Well, the Bible calls them pillars. Uh, in um, Galatians 2.9, and when James, Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who seem to be pillars, and uh, that wasn't, uh, if you go on and read the text, it's not saying they seemed to be like they weren't. No, they, it seemed to be because it was evident to the church that God had placed them as pillars in building the foundation of the church. Remember, the chief cornerstone is who? Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. He is the rock on which the entire church is built. But then he uses you and I, some of us are nails, some of us are pieces of plywood, some of us are the plumbing, and he's got these guys, the apostles, they are pillars in the church. Why were they pillars? Because they would be the men, just like in the Old Testament, you had the prophets, they would be the men that would write the epistles, the doctrines, 
They would write the letters to the churches. They would write the book of Revelation. They would write the Gospels. They would be the men that God would say, you are going to build the framework of all that I'm teaching to you now. You will then go and teach it. Remember, they had three years with Jesus under his tutelage and his mentoring, his teaching, his discipleship of them. They would be the pillars to then disciple the church. In 1 Peter 2.5, Peter writes, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted, uh, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, as flesh and blood, as body, soul, and spirit, are knitted together as the house of God. But the apostles, aren't you thankful for what God did through them? We're reading the word of God, because he gave it to either the apostles or their close associates. Like Luke was not an apostle who wrote the book of Luke, but Luke was the sidekick and the close friend of the apostle Paul. And Paul told him a lot of the things that he wrote, and go interview with so-and-so, and go talk to him, and go talk to him, and write it down. Let's look at these 12 men. I, I want to give you just a tiniest biographical sketch on each of them so you know a little bit about these men that Jesus chose. It's, it's uh, listed in a specific order. Uh, Simon Peter's listed first. Simon, whose name was also Peter, he's listed first in all four of the lists of the New Testament. The apostles are listed four times in the New Testament, and all four times Peter's listed first. He was a fisherman. You guys know that, right? He was a fisherman. He was very outspoken. He was the overall leader of the apostles. Interesting. He was bold. He was intense. He was committed. Peter asked a lot of questions. He asked more questions recorded than any of the other apostles. He asked a lot of questions, which is imperative for great leaders. Great leaders ask a lot of questions, and Peter asked a lot of them. At times, he spoke and acted on impulse. You know anybody like that? You can look in the mirror, maybe it's yourself. I know I at times have acted on impulse. Rather than wisdom and restraint, he, he didn't always speak from the Spirit. He sometimes spoke from Peter. But he almost always, and I mean almost always, is the first to speak in every single area where you see the apostles gather together. He's almost always the one to speak first. And usually, he was actually called to speak first. Interesting. And some people would immediately think, well, that must mean he was always putting his foot. No, no, no. God, God did put Peter at the head of these apostles for whatever reason. He spoke first often, but usually he actually was called to speak first. Sometimes not, but usually he was. He speaks on behalf of the others on numerous occasions. As, and they clearly are with him when he speaks, yeah, yeah, what Peter said. Jesus named him Rock, didn't he? Cephas, which is Aramaic. Petros, Greek, named him Rock. His name was Simon or Shimon. He was the first to speak in the upper room at the big prayer meeting, men and brethren. And then they called Matthias to replace Judas. He was the first to speak by the Holy Spirit. He stood up and speak where? First day after 50 on the Passover at Pentecost. 
he stands up and preaches. He's the first to speak at the apostles' meeting in Acts chapter 15. He's the first to stand up and speak. God anointed him as a Moses of his day, if you will, a leader of leaders. Peter was named. And, you know, leader of leaders have had big failures. Peter had some big ones. He denied Jesus three times. One time he said, get behind me. Or Lord, I know he said, Lord said, he said to the Lord, I will not permit you to go and die and be crucified. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Leaders of leaders have had some failures. If you're here and you're mom and dad and you've had some failures, it's okay. You can still be a great leader. If you've had failures, God can still say, I'm nowhere near done with you. I did a lot of work in Peter. There were times when I didn't ask him to speak first, and he did. There were times when I said, don't say that. He said it anyway. But for the most part, Peter's heart was in the right place, wasn't it? God did a great work in him. Then there was Andrew. He's listed second here. Andrew, his brother. He's the brother of Peter. Andrew was the first apostle to be called and follow Christ. He invited his brother, Peter. Andrew was the first one called. Isn't it interesting that the first one called is Andrew, but Andrew invites his brother and he defers to Peter the rest of their ministry? He defers to Peter, much like Aaron deferred to Moses, even though Aaron was older than Moses. Andrew was a humble man used by the Lord. And he brought his brother to Jesus. He was also in the fishing business with his brother. Andrew and Peter were inseparable as brothers, very closely connected in business and their relationship. He seems to be one of the most thoughtful of all the, he was a thinker of all the apostles. Whenever he speaks, though he rarely is recorded as speaking in scripture, his words are always measured and they're correct. They're on point. Andrew was the apostle that liked to inter, in, uh, he liked to introduce individuals to Jesus. Peter spoke to crowds. Andrew was the guy. If you're the kind of person that God allows you to connect one-on-one with people, that's a good thing. Invite them one by one. That's the way Andrew did it. He was a one-by-one kind of guy. Peter speaks 3,000 get saved. Not everyone gets that. There's men that have that calling, and there's men that have an Andrew calling. Amen? Then there's James. He comes up next in the list, James. James was the older brother of the apostle John. John would write the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He'd write Revelation. Well, James was the older brother of John. And like Peter and Andrew, James and John, they were also fishermen. They were in their own fishing business together. It was like the James and John company and the Peter and Andrew company. And then the two of them actually partnered up at times for the four of them to be fishing together. We see that uh, in, the, in the, uh, the Gospels. They were sons of a successful and influential father by the name of Zebedee, both James and John. Zebedee was their father. He established the business He was a a very successful man by everything we can tell. But except at his death, James is always mentioned in Scripture being alongside one of the other disciples. We don't see him in a solitary role like we sometimes see Peter. He's always right beside another one or several of the disciples. He was deeply loyal. James was a deeply loyal to men of like mind and commitment. Deeply loyal to men of like mind and commitment. 
He was among the inner circle of Jesus. You have, you've heard of him, right? Peter, James, John. The, the fourth of that is Andrew, and that's why Andrew is listed in the four. There was a three and there was a four. Sometimes all four are with Jesus, sometimes three are with Jesus. There was three that Jesus, and to an extent with Andrew four, that Jesus would pour a little more time into because there's principles there of leadership, and we don't have time to get into all that today. But James was part of this inner circle of Christ. He was one of the three that saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. He was one of the three that witnessed Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. He was one of the three that was with Jesus in Gethsemane. He was nicknamed, along with James and John, remember James and John are brothers, James the older brother, John the younger brother, Jesus nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. That's pretty cool, huh? He nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. I agree with others that think that Jesus did this in a very slight, loving admonishment. Okay, Sons of Thunder. You get the the point? Jesus lovingly just kind of settling these two down. They, like Peter, Peter, you get Peter, James, and John together, they'll take on anybody. They were rough fishermen, but they were intense guys, all three of them. Andrew was the measured one saying, all right, come on, you three. You have to have one that calms the other ones down. He was a very strong individual. He was a strong number two. Uh, The best we can tell is James would have been the number two man as far as intensity after Peter. But these sons of thunder, James, although he's never singled out, I mentioned he is singled out at one time, his death, he's the first to be martyred. He stands alone as the first to be martyred. Then there's John. John's the younger brother of James. He's as fiery as his brother was. It was John and James who argued who would be greatest in the kingdom. Until Peter walks up and says, that'll be me. You didn't have anything to be either of you two. Now, we don't know if Peter said. He would say something like that. But, but uh, John and James, they were arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom. This is Jesus. That'll not show up on audio. I put my head in my hands. When will these two get it? Peter's probably over there saying, I didn't say that. They said it. They both wanted to call fire down from heaven on Samaria. Because Jesus was supposed to go through Samaria, the Samaritans wouldn't allow Jesus to have a place to stay because they knew he was headed to the religious ceremonies in Jerusalem, and they despised that he was bringing this group of disciples to Jerusalem. So they said, no room in the inn for you, just like when he was a baby. No room in the inn. And Peter and John, oh, they were, uh, I'm sorry, James and John were hot. They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on Samaria? (laughs) Here's Jesus again. (sighs) We're going to get there, guys. We're going to get there. And he told them lovingly, that's not why I came. But John and James and Peter and Andrew, the four are inseparable. All four had gone. Do you know that all four of them had gone to be disciples of John the Baptist? You, they would have loved John. Camel skin, fiery as well. That's a guy we can follow. They went all the way from Galilee down there, and when they found John, they eventually found Jesus because John introduced them to Jesus with the baptism. 
All were rough and resilient fishermen. All four of these men understood that teamwork and hard work and loyalty and commitment was essential in their business, but they would learn it was essential as church leaders as well. John and the others uh, became as zealous for the truth as they had been for fishing, and they would stay with that kind of zealous fervor for the Lord after they were called to these great things of the Lord. You know, John, <laughs> John also, uh, he rebuked a man for trying to cast out a demon in Jesus' name. I mean, I'm telling you, these guys, they walked around. Before Jesus really got a hold of them, if people needed to be set straight, they were there to do it. But you know what? As John would age, he would become known as the apostle of love, the patriarch of the whole church. He outlived all the other apostles. John was the one that wrote Revelation, dies on the Isle of Patmos. He becomes a gentle, loving grandfather man that has to pat the heads of young Johns and young Andrews and young Peters and say, I used to do that too. Here's how I want you to act. Love one another, kindly, affectionate. John would become the apostle of love. He would go on to write the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. And we have Philip. Philip, his name in Greek means lover of horses. So if you love horses and you're going to have a son, choose Philip. His Jewish name, this is interesting, his Jewish name is never given in the Scriptures. We never get Philip's Jewish name. We know he had a Jewish name because he was Jewish. But he didn't have a Jewish name given in the Scriptures, so we don't know what it was. It's possible that his family were Hellenistic Jews. In other words, they were Jews. Like the Apostle Paul grew up in a very Hellenistic, or Jews that were very, very accustomed to the Gentile way of life. His parents may have been very uh, acquainted with the Gentile way of life, although they obviously were Jewish. But he came from the same city as Peter and Andrew, Bethsaida. He was a fact-based pragmatist. Any of you like bean counter accountant types? That's Philip. Sorry if I offended. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, in, John, in John chapter 6, verse 7, uh, he assesses the need for what it would take to feed the whole multitude. He gives his assessment. This ain't going to be enough. He apparently studied and knew the Old Testament prophecies, though. He was a man of great study. He had been seeking the Messiah and who he was going to be, and he had investigated the claims of Jesus. This is Philip I'm talking about, pragmatist, fact-based. Peter, drop the nets and come on and follow. Philip, hmm. After he was called, he also went and told a friend. He went and told Nathaniel. He said, we have found him. And Nathaniel's like, well, if... Philip says that he's probably done the homework. He's probably figured out all the, yep, matches that, matches that, matches that, matches that. All right, where is he? You could trust the guy who's done the legwork. Peter, he'd grab you and shake you and say, we found him. What other proof do you have? Put you in a headlock and say, come on, I'll show you. Nathaniel is next. Nathaniel, he's called Bartholomew, though. And all four of the lists. He has, you know, but all of these guys have more than one name. The name Bartholomew is a Hebrew surname, means son of Tolmai. 
And the name Nathaniel, though, it means God has given. He was a very honest man. Jesus said, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. He was from Cana, the place of Jesus' first miracle. By the way, none of these things are coincidences. You'll understand the full meaning of them when they get to heaven. You're like, wow, that, I didn't realize that every little detail all fit together. He apparently loved and knew the Old Testament and was a man who desired to be righteous and please the Lord, but he found that that would come through grace. He couldn't do it through the law, could he? Could you? No. All of us would fail. And then there's Matthew, also called Levi by Luke. He was the tax collector. He was the lowest of sinners to the Jewish community. This guy was the bottom rung of the 12, the tax collector, the scum of the earth that the, that the uh, Jewish people would have thought of him as. His only other friends were tax collectors. Sad, huh? And prostitutes and the like. Those were the only people that would hang out with tax collectors. They made good money, but they lived on the edge of society. They, all they could have was their money. They could have a big house, but nobody would come, at least not of the Jewish community. The only people that would come to their house is other tax collectors and prostitutes and drunkards, but the rest of the community avoided them like a plague. Likely a Levite, though, because he was raised as a Levite, he probably had been trained in the Scriptures because Matthew knows the Scriptures some kind of amazing. He actually is quoted. He quotes the Old Testament 99 times, which is more than Mark, Luke, and John combined. Rejected by men, but he did his own self-study. And God used him in a great way to write the book of Matthew. Deep down, he probably had a great hunger to be accepted by God because he was so rejected by his fellow Jewish community. And Jesus saw it. And Jesus walks right by the tax office and says, come and follow me. And immediately, he says, that's the acceptance I've been looking for. And he follows Christ. Then there's Thomas, called the twin. We know he had a twin. We don't know if he had a twin sister or a twin brother. We don't know. Some of people like to refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. But pessimist, which is nothing but an optimist with experience, is more accurate of Thomas. He was bold, though. Now, he saw the bottom of the barrel. If if Thomas looked at something, again, not, not so much doubting, but Thomas would say, I'm a realist. You all live in fantasy world. I live in the real world. Because Jesus was going to go back to Bethany, and the disciples were somewhat convinced that it wasn't going to be a welcome in Bethany. They thought that Jesus might be stoned to death. Now, Jesus had already told numerous times that his time had not yet come and that he, you know, he was going to Jerusalem to be lifted up, so it couldn't happen in Bethany anyway. But nevertheless, Thomas said, In John 11, 16, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go up that we may die with him. That was Thomas. It's like, it's going to end horribly. We're all going to be stoned to death. But I say, let's go anyway. That's Thomas. That's the way he was. But you've got to admire he was bold enough to go. You can't call him doubting Thomas if he's willing. He was pessimistic, skeptic Thomas. 
at times. But he was bold for the faith. He also would take the gospel all the way to India and be martyred for the faith. The last of the list, there's James, the son of Alphas, called, also called James the Less, whether it's because he was the youngest or the shortest, which are both possibilities we don't know. There's nothing else said about James, the uh, son of Alphas, other than James, the son of Alphas. You'll learn more about him when you meet him in heaven. There's Simon the Zealot. Uh, like the Pharisees, zealots were unwavering of their observance of the law. They did not bend on the law, folks. The zealots were unbending the law, but unlike the Pharisees, they actually would take it to a whole other level. They were obsessed with the Messiah that would be like David to root out the Roman Empire and bring in the new king of Jerusalem. And these guys were violent. They were the assassins, literally the assassins of their day. They carried these small daggers, and they would take out Roman soldiers. And if you were a tax collector like Levi, you'd be looking out for Simon the Zealot. And for a while, you can imagine these two of them are called by Jesus that Matthew has to be wondering a lot of times, is Simon just playing a game here? Because he was a trained assassin. Maybe he's not really a follower. Maybe I'm going to get a knife in my back one of these days because if there was one person that the zealots really hated, it was tax collectors that were Jewish, that had left the Jewish faith to be tax collectors on behalf of Caesar. And so the two of them staring each other down saying, why are you here? Why are you here? Well, I'm following Jesus. Well, I'm following Jesus. Well, you're a tax collector. Well, you're an assassin. Jesus confirming to them both, you have a new master now. You don't work for Caesar, and you don't work for the zealots anymore. You both work for me. Amazing. These are all in the 12. And um, we have Judas, the son of James. The word Judas is actually a good name, by the way. It means Jehovah. There's some good Judases in the Bible. We all seem to know the one. But um, he, was, he was a humble man. He says in John 14, 22, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He was, he, he was thoughtful about, what about everyone else, Jesus? Of course, Jesus is going to manifest himself to everyone. But he, he had a just, it's just kind of a humble question. Sincere, has some depth to him. More thoughtful like Andrew, less of the bold speaker of Peter, but you know God has this kind of really nice mix of men that he's going to shape and mold. And lastly, there's Judas Iscariot. You know, he's last in every list. He's always listed last. And Jesus said of him, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He said in Matthew 14, 21, it would be better that this man had never been born. It's an eternal warning to not ever take for granted the grace that God gives us. And to turn and look at Judas became enamored back with the world. He turned back like a dog returning to its own vomit. He went back to the things that Jesus had rescued them all from. He fell back in love with money. You know, you and I better be careful to stay in our prayer life with Jesus because the world is always trying to call you back. And Judas did to the point that he sold God's son for 30 lousy pieces of silver. 
These are the men that Jesus chose. You know, Jesus said that one day, one day that they would sit on 12 thrones. Isn't that amazing? As some people try, some people, I've, some Bible scholars seem to indicate that that 12 is just representative of all of us. I don't think so at all. I think Jesus is very explicit. These men will have a special, just like there's 24 elders in heaven, the Bible talks about the thrones of 24 elders. These men are pillars because God did great things through them. 12 minus 1 plus 2. Where Paul fits in, I don't know. I think Paul will have his own special honor as well. Uh, but these 12 men, including Matthias, who would come in the book of Acts, they will sit on 12 thrones. And not just 12 thrones. Jesus said they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel because they were faithful to their master all the days of their life. They would all die martyrs' death except for the apostle John. They would all be faithful to the end. Matthew Henry said that these disciples had followed Christ when the church was yet in its embryo state, when the gospel temple was being in the framing. But when, uh, when they had more of the work and service of the apostles, um, they had, uh, when they had more of the work of service of the apostles than of the dignity and the power that belonged to their office, and now they followed Christ with constant fatigue when few did, and therefore on them will be put particular marks of honor, Note, Christ has special favor for those who begin early with him, who trust him further than they can see him, as they did. Matthew Henry wrote that. So true. They followed Jesus when there was no proof that he would be the King of kings and Lord of lords. They followed Jesus when all they had was Jesus' word, which every one of the people that supposedly knew the Bible said, he's a liar. But they believed. And their faith will be rewarded God will raise them up, and he'll do great things through these men that we're still benefiting from today. Amen? We're glad Peter made his mistakes, so we don't have to remake them. But we're also glad that Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke, and many came to Christ. And God wants to raise us up too. Amen? He wants to handpick each and every one of us for his purposes. Let's close with the last three verses. I don't, I don't have much to say about it. We've, we've looked at some of these same things, but I just want to say under the power here in verses 17 through 19. You know, Jesus comes down. Remember, he spent all night in prayer. Follow the, follow the path here. He spends all night in prayer. God the Father has already told him in the night, you're going to name the 12 today, and one of them is going to fall away but I want you to name all 12 anyway. And here's who they are. Out of the 70 or 80 or 100 or whatever disciples there were, we don't know, God says these are the 12 men, one for a son of perdition for a specific purpose, the 11 for foundational work in the kingdom. They'll all be different. They'll all be connected, and you're going to shape and mold them over the next three years. And then they will come down with you. See, we are supposed to someday when we come Back with Jesus, we'll be coming with him, won't we? On white horse, we'll be coming with him. But right now, we should be walking with him in spirit. And then they would come down with Jesus, they would be behind him, and they would immediately see more of the evidence of his ministry, which he will someday bestow upon them. You realize that these men will be given the same miraculous power as Jesus. They will heal people. They will cast out demons. 
They'll do great miracles, not in them, the Holy Spirit flowing through them. And Jesus does a demonstration of the apostolic ministry right here at this level place, coming down from the mountain. A great multitude. People come from all over the place. Remember, Jesus is praying all night, and God starts stirring the hearts of people, head to this place, head to this place. Multitude comes. Everyone comes. D.L. Moody says, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Because Jesus spent all night in prayer, these men were called. Because Jesus spent all night in prayer, these people come out of the woodwork and they come to hear Christ preach and heal. And how many does he heal? Every single one of them. His power is poured out. And it's a testimony to the apostles, I want to save the whole world. You guys watch what I'm doing. Watch how I'm gentle with them. Watch how I'm caring for them. With prayer comes power, doesn't it? The power flows from Jesus. Look what it says, verse 19. And the multitude sought to touch him, and power went out from him. You know, with God, there's enough power for everyone, for the whole crowd. With God, there's enough training for all 11 and the 12, had Judas been willing to submit. With God, there's enough wisdom for all of our decisions. With God, there's enough healing for your infirmities. With God, there's enough for every single need. Notice they come from Judea and they come from Sidon. Sidon is Gentiles, Judea is Jewish. With God, there's enough for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus already hinting to the fact that he didn't only come for the household of Israel. He came first to the household of Israel. But he also came to Gentiles like you that live in Goochland, Powhatan, Chesterfield, and Richmond. Not by might, nor by power, but my, my spirit, saith the Lord. By his spirit. Let's close in prayer.